It's really great to be back here together. I've been gone, as you know, for the last uh, couple weeks, couple of Sundays. We are uh, traveling, and um, it's been kind of a, a whirlwind for us over the, that span of time. We uh, we had our revival services, as you as you remember, and uh, the the day after revival concluded, uh, we hit the road for a, a long journey down to Mississippi, which takes us a couple of days to get there. And then the day after we arrived there, I hopped a plane in Jackson, Mississippi, and flew up to Columbus, Ohio, where then I caught a, a pickup truck pulling a boat up to Michigan for a fishing trip. And then after a few days in Michigan, I drove back to Columbus, where I caught a plane and flew back to Jackson, Mississippi, where I picked up my family and the two-day journey back home. So in, uh, in 10 days away, I was traveling six of the 10 days. It was 4,000 miles round trip. Um, and yes, I am every bit as exhausted as you could imagine from that, uh, but it was a really just great time away with family, and uh, Becca got to see her family, and they got to see the grandkids, uh, our kids, uh, their grandmother's grandkids, uh, uh, 184, 184, and that was after a cold front moved through and sort of messed up our plans, so we still caught plenty of fish. Thank you for, thank you for giving me a chance to tell everybody that number, Bernie, I appreciate that. We won't go there. We won't talk about how, how big they were or who, who caught the biggest one. That's not relevant. Um, or who caught the most. We won't talk about that either. Uh, but between revival and traveling and getting back and trying to get unburied from all the stuff that piles up when you're away, and then golf scramble and yard sale and getting ready for Pentecost and celebrating the Maservies and all that's going on, somewhere in all of this crazy last several weeks, I got completely disoriented and lost track of all time. And Thursday, late Thursday afternoon, I thought I would be cute and play a little prank on Aaron and put something in his office. And I walked in there and it was empty. And it hit me. Um, in all of the crazy, I, I lost track of his last day in the office. And, and isn't that a thing about life? We, we get caught up in our schedules and in all the, the obligations and the pressures and sometimes the hardships and the sufferings. And those things can be disorienting. They can cause us to, to miss important moments and, and, or lose perspective or lose sight of things that are most important. And I think somewhere in that is the thing that's on the Apostle Peter's heart as he's writing his first epistle. I'm going to be reading here in a moment from 1 Peter chapter 1. But I, I think that is, that is somewhere there in those first verses, something that is on his heart. That in the midst of life, with all of its challenges and all of its hardships and all of the struggles, and even in the suffering, he is concerned that the people of God would not forget the greatness of their salvation. That they would not lose perspective. That they would not forget to remember the things that God has done for them in the past that they would not fail to look ahead to the future with, with great hopeful anticipation for an inheritance that can neither, neither perish nor spoil nor fade. You know, Jesus, he too suffered. He too lived in this world, this broken world like you and I do. He too had pressures and obligations, and he went through great suffering. But the scriptures say that he suffered, but then he entered into glory. And there's a pattern there that you and I can look to as we think about our own lives and the, and the difficulties and the struggles and the, and the challenges we face, that the salvation that God has begun in us, he will carry to completion. And it's a great, great 
salvation. And so, in light of the past things that God has done, and in light of the, the great future that we have to look forward to, even when things around you are falling on the ground, we should be amazed by our salvation. And so with that in mind, look with me in what Peter says here in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, just through uh, verses 8 through, tw- um, I'm sorry, 10 through 12. He says, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron, for helping us here. So this morning, as we dive into these verses and and kick off a new sermon series that will go for the next four weeks, I want to start by offering you from our text here five reasons that the Apostle Peter tells us that we should be amazed by our salvation. So if you're a note taker, there's going to be five points here. I see Joanne's got her pen out. She's ready to go. There will be five Five points here we're going we're gonna to note together. The first is this. We should be amazed by our salvation because, number one, it is all from beginning to end a work of grace. A work of grace. He says in verse 10, it is a gracious salvation, which means, simply put, that you and I never have to work or strive to be acceptable to God. Ever. In Christ, God has done everything that you could ever need to be acceptable to him. He's already done it. And so you and I can say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to, you know how the song goes, thy cross I cling. That's all we need. He is everything. He is sufficient. And so you and I can, can take a deep breath this morning and, and release ourselves from the burden of having to work and strive to be acceptable to God because he's made, he's made a way. And that way is through his son. That realization, by the way, is life-giving. That is life-giving. To know that it's not up to you to, to perform. It's not up to you to work. It's not up to you to do the stuff that somehow makes God less angry with you. That makes God finally say, okay, you know, I'll let you in. Or, okay, I'll finally accept you and I'll give you my favor. No, you don't have to do that. And yet somehow, even mature Christians who have followed Jesus for for many years can tend to struggle to find the balance between God's grace and our response. What is our part in this? Where do works fit into this whole equation? We know that works don't save us. We know that works don't earn us salvation. And yet they're still part of the equation. and, And what is the relationship? And and so we either fall into one category where we say that, that, you know, yes, God accepted me initially by his grace, but in order to keep God's favor, I have to do all the things. And we get into this trap of, 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 of good Christian behavior, good Christian living. If I do X, Y, and Z, then God will continue to want, will continue to accept me. Or we go some other extreme where we think that works have no part in it at all. And it only matters what I, what I say I believe. It doesn't matter how I actually live. And I think Pastor Stan addressed that on the last night of revival. 
when he referred to Romans chapter 12, where we are to present our bodies as living sacrifice. It's not, I just give him my mind. No, I give him my mind and my heart and my soul and my will and my flesh. He gets all of me. But that doesn't earn his favor. So what is the relationship between grace and works? I like what, what Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, the grace of God has been revealed bringing salvation to all people. So salvation by grace alone. It, now listen to this, it, his grace, instructs us to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this world, this evil world, with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people. There's the grace side of things. But then he concludes, totally committed to doing good deeds. Grace is free, but it has implications. Now, there are a lot of wrong reasons to want to say no to ungodliness, and you can probably relate to some of these but what are some of the reasons people might seek to, to avoid ungodliness in their life? Well, maybe it's you're afraid of looking bad. If I, if I do such and such behavior or partake in such and such thing, well, then that'll, you know, hurt my reputation. Or maybe it's because you know you'll get in trouble. I don't want to do that thing because I know it'll have repercussions. And by the way, you should avoid doing wrong things because you don't want to get in trouble. That's not a a terrible reason to avoid doing wrong things, but that's not the best reason or the, or the primary reason. Maybe we avoid ungodliness because we're afraid of being excluded from a particular social circle or fellowship of people. We're worried about being cast out or, or alienated or cut off somehow. Or maybe because we're afraid that God won't give me the, the health and wealth and happiness that I think I need. Or maybe it's because, like all of us, I think, can relate I know that when I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to hate myself that much more. Now, what do all those reasons have in common? Well, simply put, they're all kind of self-focused, aren't they? It's all about me. It's all about how it impacts me, what affects me, why I don't want to, to come back negatively on me. But I think trying to be godly out of selfish motives is, well, it's like a house of cards that you might be building and you might have built quite the tower, but in the end, you know it's going to collapse. I think the only right reason for saying no to ungodliness, according to what Paul would say there in Titus chapter 2, and, and, and the thing that God's grace is instructing us to do, to be godly, I think the only right motivation is love for the one who first loved us. It's love. We don't avoid ungodliness to earn God's favor. We avoid ungodliness because we have God's favor. And that is a huge distinction. Because on one hand, it's, it's striving to earn, striving to be accepted, striving for God to, to, to bless and to, and to do the things that you need him to do. But the other is all a response to what he's already done. It's yes, I, I, there's a certain type of life that, that Christ expects of me and that the Spirit of God is working in me to produce and enable, but none of it is ever to earn anything. It is a response to what he has already done for me. 
Christ has earned the favor that you have received by faith. And now you live in response to that a certain way. His grace sets the heart free to love and obey him completely. We receive and then respond. And it is only ever in that order. And if we get those backwards or introduce any type of works-based salvation, then we fail to see the greatness of God's gracious salvation. His grace, it encourages us when we fail and humbles us when we succeed. It is the thing we deserve the least, and yet it is the thing that is offered freely in limitless supply. It is a grace that is greater than all of our sins. We give him praise for that today. Secondly, our salvation is amazing because it was planned long ago. There is no shortage of debate um, in the Christian world and perhaps even among us at times um, about the age of the earth. So here we are outside and we're looking around and we see the plants and the trees and the sky and the rocks and the stars if it were dark. There's no stars out at the moment. I guess there's one. It's over there. It's blocked by the, the church. And, and we debate whether this all came into being. Was it thousands of years ago? Was it millions? Was it billions? And I have known really quality, godly, trustworthy people that fit everywhere in the spectrum. And I, res and I respect them all. But here's the thing. Whether the creation of the cosmos happened 6,000 years ago or 4.6 billion years ago, we can know this, that God's love for you and his plans to incorporate you into his salvation preceded it. That's astonishing to me. To know that I was loved even then. I remember when, when my wife first informed me that she was for sure pregnant with our first child, Savannah. I think she'd already had one test come back positive, but there was a little bit of uncertainty, I think, and so we were actually traveling at the time, and she was able to, to get confirmation our first morning in Ohio, and she was up before I was, and I'll never forget, she came, I was in the basement sleeping on an air mattress, I think, and uh, yeah, well, we just won't say anything more about the air mattress. But um, <clears throat> she came down, and I'll never forget the, the velvety tone of her voice. And she whispers in my ear, good morning, Daddy. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget those months that followed. The, those, you know, for you who have, who have gone through the process, you know what I'm talking about of, as a first-time parent of, of having to buy all the things and put together all of the things. You just should have seen me putting together the crib by myself. I was a disaster. Um, but putting the things together and going to the, the classes and reading the, the books and the articles and, and doing all the, putting in all the blood and the sweat and the tears and the prayers that it takes to, to bring a child into this world. And, and Becca also put some effort into it too. <laughs> But in all seriousness, we, we did it all, all those things. Why? Oh, because, because we loved this tiny person who's not so tiny anymore. This tiny person who we had never met. We didn't even know her, her, her sex or her face or her name. And yet we loved her. And not just the ID 
idea of her. We loved her. And let me tell you something. That is, by God's grace and his gift to humanity, that is just the tiniest glimpse, the tiniest glimpse into the love of God for you from before the creation of the world. God, whose, whose heart was turned out toward you in love from the foundation of the world. And not just love at the idea of you. God knew you and loved you. With all your flaws that hadn't even happened yet. And all the stupid things that you have done and will probably still do. God loved you from eternity past. If that doesn't even begin to astonish you, then I don't know what could. Verse 11 says, The Spirit of Christ within the prophets was talking about the salvation, which means the prophets in the Old Testament bore witness to Christ only because Christ first bore witness to himself. That, that the things he was going to do that hadn't even happened yet, he had planned long before. He himself foretold about himself that he might draw us into himself. Church, you and I have not been loved by just one bloody moment of sacrifice in history. No, we have been loved for endless ages in the eternal plan of God to save sinners who trust in him. Speaking of the prophets, number three, be amazed by your salvation because the prophets longed to see it. They longed to see it. Verses 10 and 11 say this. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. In other words, they were talking about things that they didn't fully understand or comprehend. And isn't that amazing that these great prophets from the Old Testament, these great heroes of the faith that we look to and we, we tell their stories to our kids in Sunday school and a vacation Bible school, and we have their pictures plastered on the wall, and we, 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 we talk about them to our kids, and, and we remember all those great stories, people who walked with God and talked with God and heard him speak and witnessed those, what we call theophanies, those physical manifestations of the, the presence of God, you know, in the form of fire or smoke or clouds or whatever it was, these people who who saw these things and experienced these things, not one of them ever saw or experienced the fullness of God's salvation in the presence of the person of his son. Not one. What they long to see, you and I have been blessed to receive. Jesus says in Matthew 13, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Don't forget how truly blessed you and I are on this side of history. That the things those holy men and women of old looked to and desired and aspired to and wondered about are the very things that you and I, well, if we're not careful, we'll take for granted. Think of it this way. And there's a lot of talk about parents and ch children today, so I don't mean to alienate anybody, but it's, I'm the one preaching, so I'm thinking things from my perspective, and so hopefully everyone can still relate to this. Think of it this way. You parents, when you've got, well, we'll just say picky children at a dinner table who are 
grumbling about the vegetable or whatever's there that they don't like, what do you say to them? Well, actually, I don't want you to say it out loud because you may say something that's probably not appropriate for church. Um, Generally, we say things like, there are starving people in China. Therefore, you'd better eat your food. Now, that works exactly 0% of the time. But it makes us feel... It makes us feel good as parents that we're being, you know, whatever, being sensitive to the needs of the world, whatever. I mean, it is true. There's some truth in it, though, isn't there? That, that our children in this country sit at tables with, an, relatively speaking, an abundance of food. And yet, the tendency is for all people who are spoiled to be, well, entitled or to complain, to, to grumble. And, and what a parent is trying to do when they say something like that is to give them perspective. You don't like what's on your, your plate, but at least there's something on your plate. It's all about the attitude. It's all about perspective, seeing things the right way. And I think there's something like that here. You know, when we think about the prophets, these great people who longed to feast on the grace that you and I stuff ourselves with, yet tend to take for granted. And I dare say every one of us has been guilty of presuming on God's grace or, or treating it lightly or just not even almost thinking like we deserve it somehow, that I'm entitled to it. That going back to my first point that we've done X, Y, and Z, therefore, well, we deserve this thing from God that we think he owes us at this point. I think Peter would say, no, 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 don't take it for, don't take it for granted. It's all of grace. It was planned long ago, and the prophets longed to see it, and they never did, but you have. Don't lose that perspective and take it for granted. We should always be thankful and always have that perspective of gratitude, even when things are hard, especially when things are hard. Peter's writing to a church in persecution. And there's no room for grumbling in the Christian life at all. If you don't think you grumble, I challenge you to take a notepad and a piece of paper and write down in a day every single time you complained about anything. Anything from the smallest to the biggest things. I see a lot of grimacing and discomfort and shuffling in your seats right now because you know exactly what I'm talking about. We complain about everything. Tell me how that fits into the equation of people who are lavished with God's grace. There shouldn't be a a second of, of grumbling on our lips. And if you don't think you do, start writing it down every time you do, and then you'll just wait until you see what the list looks like at the end of the day. (laughs) Consider all God has done for you and all that you have to look forward to. Number four, uh, thinking about the prophets again, not only did they long to see it, but they labored to prepare us for it. And that's a really amazing thing here in verse 12 where Peter writes, the prophets were told, imagine if this was you, that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. In other words, the things that they were doing and saying and the, the, the danger that they were putting themselves in and the suffering they received as a result, none of it was for themselves. It was for people that they would never meet on this side of heaven. Could you imagine living your whole life and calling, being misunderstood and unappreciated by the ones you serve? Could you imagine that? Well, you parents are like, Amen, Pastor John. I could write a thing or two about that. There's some teachers here that know what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, don't even get me started about pastors. We know all about that stuff. It's just a joke. Lighten up. <laughs> Seriously, though, the, the, the prophets, their, their obedience to God and all of their suffering was spent serving us. Though none of them ever fully understood or, or were appreciated in their day, their labor and their sacrifice was not in vain. They built a foundation upon which the house of salvation resides that you and I now occupy. Yesterday when I was, uh, along with my teammates, dominating at the men's golf scramble. <laughs> thank you, Nathan. I didn't tell him to do that. He just, he's cut from the same cloth. You know, he <laughs> the apple has not fallen very far from the tree at all. Um, on the 10th hole, we had, they had the longest drive contest. And um, I still think there was some cheating involved, but John managed to outdrive me by a, a matter of inches, centimeters, if you ask me. It was so close, neck and neck, but he, he outdrove me, and so he got to write his name on the little clipboard in the middle of the fairway. But what I noticed on the 10th hole to my left was a house being constructed. And you know, the thing about house construction, if it's built, if it's built well, it's built on what? A foundation of some kind. And I was thinking about, I don't know, someone could correct me on the types of foundations, but we'll presume for a second that there was a concrete slab that was laid down. And I was picturing a, a cement truck pulling up to just a hole in the ground and pouring concrete according to the instructions he was given. You know, the guy that pours the concrete doesn't get to see the house at least not yet, does he? He doesn't get to see the house, and chances are he doesn't ever get to live in the house. And yet, without his foundation, the house could never be built. And in the same way, the prophets laid the foundation for the great salvation that you and I have received in Christ, that by their work and their words, we would see the proof of who Christ is. And as a result of that, have an unshakable faith. There's, that's one of the great things about our salvation is that we can be confident in it. We can be certain it is a sure hope. When my eight-year-old son comes to me and says, Dad, how can we know that our faith is true? I can respond to him along with a lot of other things and say, well, because Jesus rose from the dead just as the prophets said he would. It's not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that he rose, the dead, rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And there's a certainty and a surety and a, a conviction that comes from knowing that everything God promised he would do through people who never got to see it in their lives came true. And you and I can look back at all the promises of God's word and we can see them fulfilled in Christ and we can have a sure and steady hope today in this life. Even when the world crumbles and the wind blows things on the ground and everything around us seems to be falling apart and the world is burning, you can have a firm faith because of the foundation that was laid for you. So we should be amazed by our salvation because it is all of grace. It was planned long ago. The prophets longed to see it. The prophets prepared us for it. And lastly, number five, because the Holy Spirit brings it to us. Verse 12, Peter writes, This good news 
has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So think about this for a moment. Yes, the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New were messengers of good news, weren't they? But who was the author of it? Who was the author of it? Oh, it was God himself. It is God who is the one writing the story. It is the gospel, the good news of God, not the good news of man. And just as the Holy Spirit revealed truth to the prophets, he announced and explained the truth through the apostles. And there's this beautiful relationship here as we think about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for those in the membership class this morning, this will be very fresh to you because we were just kind of talking about these things just an hour or so ago. Both the Old and the New Testaments, every bit of your Bible that you have on your lap here this morning or on your phone, every bit of it is God's complete, inspired, authoritative, and inerrant revelation for you. Every bit of it. The old is about what was to come, and the new is about what has come. And by the same Holy Spirit, Jesus was promised by the prophets and proclaimed by the apostles, and both testaments point to him from beginning to end. One points ahead, one reflects behind, and all of it bears witness to Jesus. And you and I are heirs of this complete revelation of God. You and I have received it. And we, it has been entrusted to us. And, and with, with that, that title of heir and the, the status, the privileged status of being an heir of this revelation comes the responsibility of being heralds. And we've already talked about this morning when Pastor Aaron so wonderfully led us into our time of witnessing that you and I are not just a go into the, the closed building with the door shut and share our nice little stories with each other and then we wrap, wrap that up with a nice little bow and then we go back out into the world and live our worldly lives. No, you and I on Pentecost Sunday, if we don't get this now, we'll never get it. We're not called to sit inside in the pews and be comfortable and tell our story to each other. We're called to go out into the world. The Spirit of God came in power and what did the disciples do? They left the space where he came. They were driven. They were compelled with a commission to take the news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we have everything we need to do it. That's why we're wearing our red, or kind of red today. We are heirs that are called to be heralds. You and I know the greatest story ever told. And with that knowledge comes responsibility to share it with the world. It's not our job to hoard it to ourselves, is it? No, it has been entrusted to us that we would share it with the world and here's the beautiful thing, and my favorite part about Pentecost Sunday is that when we share this good news, it's not our good news, it's his good news. When we share it, the same Holy Spirit who prepared us for it and the same Holy Spirit who inspired the apostles to reflect back upon it is the same Holy Spirit that enables you to proclaim it. That you don't have to do it in your own power or your own strength. You don't have to summon up the courage or overcome your shortcomings or have all the things neat and tidy and perfectly prepared. No, he just wants a willing vessel in which he can come in all of his fullness and give you all that you need to be all that you need to be to share the good news with the world around you, period. You and I have the greatest story ever told and it is ours to share with the world. And the Holy Spirit will be there with us as he has always been 
throughout all the generations. Hey, if he planned it long ago, then you can bet he's willing to be present today to, to ensure that as many people as possible can come and taste and experience this amazing salvation. Church, don't allow the troubles and challenges and distractions of your life like I did this week, don't allow them to rob you of your joy or to, to change and alter and disrupt your perspective. Don't lose sight of the greatness of your salvation or the responsibilities that accompany it. Both are important, and Peter wants us to keep both those things in mind. And he says in verse 12 that all of these things are so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. You know, that verb there literally means to strain the neck. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verb used in John chapter 20 of Mary when she arrives at the empty tomb and she, she's looking in. There's this eager desire, this strong interest, this something is, is captivating about this moment. And Peter says the angels are straining their necks to watch God work the salvation out in your life and in my life in this world. The world, which is the stage, and the church, which is the cast through which the depths of God's love is being put on display for all of created reality to behold, both visible and invisible. Everything God created is watching his great work in your life and in my life right now. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, his intent from before all time was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his purposes, eternal purposes, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, behold and cherish and proclaim and receive the beauty and the mystery of this amazing salvation. It is a treasure, Jesus said, that is worth exchanging and trading away everything else in life to receive. It is a pearl of great price. It is a treasure hidden in a field that, that you and I, if we only could begin to grasp the, the weight and the, the value of it, we'd be willing to sell everything we have in order that we might purchase that field and acquire it for ourselves. It is a gift of grace from the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit for you and for me. Let us worship Him and praise Him and offer ourselves to Him and let Him do His work in us to share it with the world to the glory of His name. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your amazing salvation that You have made possible for us through Your Son and in Your Spirit. And Lord, we confess and I hope and pray that we're repenting for all the ways that we've presumed upon it or we've just taken it for granted or abused it somehow or twisted it or turned it into something about us. Lord, we want to say no to that, the attitude of the heart and say yes to you, to receive from you what you are freely offering, to, to take into ourselves your life and your mercy and your love and your grace, all mediated by your spirit, that we would be the, the people you've called us to be, that take the good news that you are the author of and then share it with the world. Why keep it to ourselves? There literally are people around the world starving, but not just for food, 
They're starving for life and good news. Lord, on this Pentecost slash missions focused Sunday, would would we be the people that take the nourishment that you are to the ends of the earth? Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit that we would be. We pray that you be glorified as a result in Jesus' name. Amen.